I was not deafened by Vuvuzelas. When did your hearing recover? I mean, the 2010 World Cup was the first tournament I covered cover to cover. I mean, I've been to the 2006 World Cup for to work for ESPN. But yeah, I mean, it, the funny thing is, I sort of got used to it. I was staying in Johannesburg, and I think it was the first morning of the tournament. I went to the opening match, and where I was staying was next to a school. And about 6.30 in the morning, these kids were going to school, and they were... Um, they were on the Venezuelas and off they went uh, all day and all night. The old rugby stadium, Johannesburg had two stadiums back in that uh, that World Cup, Ellis Park. I remember it was pretty ramshackle. It was old style. I think it would be built in the 30s or 40s or something like that. And uh, just walking from from the press bit to the to, to go and sit down in the stadium, I remember someone just parping one right down my ear hole, and you know just thinking. You know, uh, when you when you've done sort of fifteen days straight working, and then you're getting no sleep, and then you're off travelling, it, it wears you down after a while. Yeah. Uh, I've read a couple I've, of books. I've still got one here, but yeah. Oh, oh the, where do you keep your vuvu? Uh, it's behind. <laughs> it's behind the desk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> out of sight. I don't, I don't play it very often, though. No, um, I've read Johnny Northcroft's book and Barney Roney's books about the 2018 World Cup covering thereof. Yeah. It's just logistics. And Johnny, Jonathan Wilson's talked about, I think he wrote a piece for the Blizzard about just the train network of Poland and Ukraine. You were at that Euros, was it 2012? Yes, I was, yeah. yeah. Did you uh, voyage on the train with Wilson? I didn't actually, no. I, uh, two or three of us went out there for ESPN. I went out there, I spent my time in... Poland well, until the semi-final and the semi-final that I attended was the game in which Mario Balotelli destroyed Germany as you may recall yeah. so I was there, I was in Warsaw thankfully ESPN are a well-resourced company so I was able to fly now actually flying in uh, Poland was actually well no I can't remember the name of the what happened actually is that I had uh, I had a burglary and uh, all my stuff got stolen all my equipment and, uh, you know, I was lamenting this on Twitter and some friendly uh, local sent me a link saying, you know, why don't you book yourself, you know, because I was complaining about having to get on a, on a, I was whinging and complaining, you know, apologies for this, but complaining about not being able to anything to read or listen to. And he said, why don't you get one of these flights? And local flights at that point in Poland were very, very cheap. So uh, I flew while Jonathan sweated on the train. So That's horrible. And that's, wow. I think that's possibly the last time that I've ever tra- I will ever travel in higher class <laughs> than Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Inverting the Pyramid, we spoke about his book. He said, if you include American English, 20 languages. He, yes. And yet he still works. He's still cranking out books and blizzards. But yeah, so we'll get to the football shortly. But also you travelled Brazil. Uh, yes. Where were you based predominantly in Brazil? Well, yeah, I mean... It... <laughs> ESPN, uh, maybe they were trying to tell me something, but they, 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 at these tournaments I would generally be posted at some outpost or other. Now, 2016, I actually was sent to Bordeaux in Toulouse, which wasn't too bad, but yeah. I began in Rio, I flew up to the England-Italy game in Manaus, <laughs> and then I began uh, my two- or three-week odyssey uh, between Brasilia, which was a very interesting place, uh, and then a place which very few people went to, uh, which was Cuaba, 
which is the most central location in South America, and is there pretty much their sort of wild west. So you you're next to some wetlands. Um, you are. Uh, that's where a lot of the farming is done. I was told not to go out there. It was a pretty rough town. You, ESPN paid for some security and they drove me around. So Jeez, wow. uh, there, there are quite a few journalists that didn't enjoy their time in Brazil. I was not one of them. I really did enjoy it. Um, and I found the infrastructure for those that could afford it was pretty decent. Below that, uh, for those that couldn't afford it, I suspect it's probably not an easy way of life down there. It was a it was a fun World Cup that one uh, to attend. Um, the best games to attend were the Brazilian games. I went to two or three of those. That was a fantastic atmosphere. Though I should introduce the caveat that those fans that were there were not the locals. They were busting, busting middle class. Mm. You know, if you attend these tournaments, what you tend to find uh, is that there is a FIFA world in which people operate and they eat McDonald's snacks and they drink Budweiser or whatever and and you know and then there's a corporate boxes on top of that and then there's a world outside now in South Africa um, the security was pretty tight and you didn't really get to uh, you know um, move among you mean Johannesburg was pretty much locked down you went into the game you went out you never really moved into the the city, the city centre. Uh, it was a bit more free and easy in Brazil, but you have to be pretty careful. Compared to attending tournaments in Europe, it's very, very different. Mm. Um, you know, if you stay in France, it's it's fine. You know, yeah, I live in I live in East London. It's it's much rougher here than it would be there. You know? Oh, I've no, I've, I've, I've I know people in Stepney Green. There's a wonderful middle class posh cinema there. It's wonderful. Yes, yes, I, I, and I do go there. Yeah. yeah. So. Hopefully, it'll be open soon, and we'll be able to see. Football-inspired film. When you were in Brazil, um, yes. there were all these working-class protests saying, "Well, don't fund the Olympics; fund our crumbling hospitals." Was it a clash of cultures for you? I know, having lived in East London, but um, did you see a kind of class issue in Brazil oh, yeah. that makes it a fascinating country? Yeah, I, yeah, definitely, definitely. I remember being—I mean, yeah, I was lucky to be there—the the, the World Cup final, and you. Uh, American are and uh, the, the the ledge on which the uh, press seating was, you know, which was right up at the top of the stadium, and I'm there chatting along with my colleagues, and you look out, and behind you is a favela, up the hill, oh, you know, yeah. across, and you, you you know that which is, I mean, it's recently been in the news due to sort of the COVID outbreaks there and such like that, and you know the standard of living there, and it's. A place like Brazil, Sao Paulo is particularly uh, th- th- this one on where you, you're looking at great opulence and the, the rich almost live in the sky, in the skyscrapers. And then below that, you've got these great sprawling towns and shanty towns or whatever uh, where, where people live. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to see, I mean, the stadium in Sao Paulo was about 40 minutes out of town and seeing the, the the way people lived outside out there, um, you know, and you hear these stories of people having to travel two, three hours to get into work, to be in for work for seven in the morning, and then having to travel back. It's it's a hard life out there if you haven't got money. That's that's the way it is. Yeah. I so, wonder what'll happen to the Guardian's offices because it's King's Place. It's very Des Res. There's a music venue in the basement. 
But why? If you can file from home and meet over Zoom, why do you need to go back to a newspaper office, especially when The Guardian is, as we know, digital first? It's probably not particularly politic for me to discuss that, but... You are correct. Yeah, we, That's the right answer. We, we've we've been working from home for... And it's, it will be, for me personally, it will be a year on Monday, the next Monday, I think. Uh, I've worked from home. It is possible, but it's also hard. So let's put it that way. It is, it, you don't realise how much easier it is to work within a team when you're putting, say, a newspaper or a website together that um, from you know, facing another person or people to get it done makes it so much easier. I mean, we've all got used to it, but um, it is difficult. But, you know, one thing I would say about The Guardian and, you know, the rest of the newspapers in this country and across the world, the fact that they're still managing to turn out uh, newspapers and websites and, the st- and that the standard of them hasn't descended at all shows just how... Uh, just the quality of work that people are producing in very mm. difficult circumstances. There was, of course, the blip last spring where there was no football whatsoever, so The Guardian ran a My Favourite Game yes. um, section. It was an act of self-sacrifice, you said, about Luis Suarez. Who knows yes. what he is? But I was, I was watching that game. I just graduated from Edinburgh, so I was able to enjoy. Amazingly, my A-level year was 2006, and right. final year at Edinburgh with, was 2010. So I enjoyed the South Africa World Cup from the comfort of the sportsman bar at Teviot uh, in Bristow Square. And I remember getting so irked by Luis Suarez. I was more annoyed that Frank Lampard's goal had been disallowed against Germany. I think I just left the, the building. But um, that game, the, your favourite game, is the Asamoah Jean game, yes. as will be known. Uh, I was working with, and I suppose a phalanx of ESPN colleagues, probably six or seven of us are there. I mean, uh, all sat together and just <laughs> quite a few of them were not the most experienced football reporters. And okay, what we remembered is a great World Cup, but that moment will be remembered because it was just so insane because of the, the Suarez handball. And as, as I wrote in that piece, you know, he, he would go on to do far worse things. And that was actually an understandable act of skullduggery. Um, but yeah, the Gian thing was just incredible. You know, he stepped up in a stadium which is cheering for the African team. There was very much a pan-African mm. patriotism, and he misses. And then, of course, the game finishes, and at the point that he misses, you, I could see Suarez sort of slowly moping his way down the tunnel, suddenly turning around, celebrating, and you know, it, it, it all everything changed. And then we go to the penalty shootout. And the, the, the point where we realised that Gian was stepping up to take it, it was just laughter and just amazement that he would step up to take it and that he actually scored, well, amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, and unfortunately, Uruguay, the bad guys won, but they were, in that World Cup, uh, a very good team to watch, it has to be said. Yeah. The, the 2014 final, to go back to, do you think if yes. Higuain had scored, Cristiano Ronaldo would forever be known as the second greatest footballer of all time? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. I mean, I saw Argentina a, a little bit during that World Cup. I think I saw in three matches. I think, i tell you what, the moment I thought that changed that World Cup, um, uh, they beat Belgium, and that was in Brasilia, one of my uh, my bases. I think that was the quarter-final or the second round. Di Maria 
and Messi had a real understanding. And there is a pass played by Messi in that game, which is probably the greatest pass I've ever seen played. And I've seen Messi play quite a few times, and he often does this. I often think it's better watching him when he drops a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he played this pass through. Uh, Di Maria runs after it. It's a beautiful ball, but suddenly Di Maria pulls up and he's done his hamstrings, Dan Russell or whatever. And and that pretty much was the end of um, Argentina as an attacking force, really. That's interesting. So if Di Maria had played in the final, then Mario Goetze wouldn't have had his moment. No, well, who knows? But but what, what you do know is that Messi had someone else who could carry the ball and Di Maria at his best and as he had been actually in that year's yeah. European Cup final mm-hmm. just such a supreme carrier of the ball um, in a way that uh, other teams found very difficult to deal with and you know once he was gone uh, it, it just you know they just were not quite the same team and that game that I went to in Sao Paulo against uh, the Dutch and you know uh, which was one of which was which was the night before the uh, actually oh, it was either the night before or the night after I, I forget which but um, in fact it was the night after the seven one Maracanazo two yes and uh, you know the, that was you know Brazil in mourning or whatever and but it was a shocking game and Argentina were essentially constipated and uh, both Higuain and Aguero both players that you know we but we know how good they they are and have been but just weren't fit i think that was the problem that argentina seemed to have a problem keeping everyone fit and messi after that game i wrote the piece in the live piece after that game for espn about you know how messi's this was messi's chance to actually be you know the best player of all time to, to claim that crown and it didn't happen for him and uh he probably wouldn't have a better chance and I, I think that I still holds, unfortunately. Mm. I've, I like Guardiola saying Ronaldo's the best player on earth, but Messi's the best player in the universe. Uh, over to Scott Murray, goal by uh, Havertz, or has that hit his arm? It's close, especially when you factor the T-shirt rule into the equation. The whistle goals, no goal, but VAR is going to have a check. Two minutes later, nope, no goal. Havertz is a wee bit unfortunate there. We're in the realm of clear and obvious error, in other words, umpire's call. That's right. very good. So he's clearly explained why the goal hasn't been given, i.e. by the referee, and VAR has not overruled him um, and wouldn't have overruled him if the goal had stood. So the referee has taken the decision that the goal's been disallowed. VAR has just double-checked and has said, yep, all clear, nothing on. Um, but VAR has ruined Football is a spectacle, but it's a business at that level, just like at the World Cup, which has been ruined by money. What is the the highest level of football not ruined for you? Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, you know, that I am totally against VAR. This is an unpopular opinion. Let, let's recall the 2018 World Cup in which VAR or VAR, whichever you want to use the, uh, the, the acronym, uh, it's... Um, <laughs> It, it, it worked during that tournament, I think, for quite a bit of it. And then at a certain point, it seemed like FIFA decided that they didn't like it and it disappeared. And then it reappeared, I think, in the final. But I think it can work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think changing people's perception of it is going to be very difficult. I don't think people, 
particularly in this country, readily accepts change. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, um, oh, we're talking on the 8th of uh, March, so there's a big TV event in about 90 minutes, and it's not uh, who's playing later on. It's it's not Palace against whoever. It's well, yeah, it's West Ham Leeds. West, it's, yeah, definitely not, it's not the second half of that. No, uh, no. It, it, so yeah, you, people don't readily, don't readily accept change, and I think. I mean, let's face it, football has become a TV, even more of a TV sport over the last year. Um, the one thing I would say is that when I've been actually in stadiums, and there has been VR, it is terribly confusing. No, it's a nightmare. Because, nightmare. Yeah. Um, but on TV, which, you know, we have to accept that it is a TV game, it, it, it can work. It's just that what we have realised is that, and I've... I, Listen, over the years, I've worked for editors who were obsessed with referees, and I've never really been obsessed by refereeing. There, there is a certain brand of fan who checks the checks the match ahead and will check the referee of the game. Now, I've never been one of those fans. I've never really seen the point of it. Now, you might say, if I grew up supporting Manchester United, I never had to worry. Quite right, but, yes. But I don't think that was the case because... I've always held this opinion, and maybe this is completely idealistic, but if you needed a refereeing decision to win a game, you probably didn't play well enough to win it. That's sort of my point of view. Mm-hmm. And I, over the many, many years I've watched football, I can't think of many games I can think of in which you can truly say, yes, the referee completely altered uh, the trajectory of that game. Now, the one that you the one that we've often talked about is the Chelsea-Barcelona game back in 2009 uh, in which uh, Iniesta scores in the last minute with that sort of golf shot in, and you know there was the Didier Drogba going bonkers at the end and Balak chasing the referee now the problem with that is that Chelsea didn't put the ball in the net and they were the better team for most of that game I think Essien scored a very good goal mm-hmm. but they didn't get the job done and then you're relying on refereeing decision to go your way and it didn't happen and um, I don't think the referee had a great game in that game but I don't think it's the greatest controversy robbery of all time I tend to think that I mean Roy Keane who's not always the, the moral arbiter but I do think he has his point of view which is if you give a referee a decision to make then you've got a problem and that's what happens and what you're seeing with VAR is a, a decision the problem is that the decisions are there to be made and then they're there to be picked over and over by... The punditocracy. By the punditocracy, of course, they're like, well, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. And then I don't know if it is helpful to have a referee in the studio. I mean, if we talk about the two broadcasters we have in the UK, Sky, I noticed, don't go too big on oh. refereeing. Well, no, because they'll probably hire Mike Dean next season. Be careful what you wish for. Well, yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure that they do because I think they've realised that if you just go on and on about refereeing decisions, it perhaps lessens the products a little bit. Mm. Whereas BT, um, and I think a lot, a lot of BT's coverage is good, but I do think that they have a propensity to go on and on about refereeing decisions and VAR. Now, you know, the old idea that the referee's decision is final is no longer valid, but what we can say is that if you get hung up on refereeing decisions and you think a refereeing decision is what changed the game, that's probably not the case because you, you probably, as I said, you probably didn't play well enough to mm. win the game. So I don't know. I just, I just, I, yeah. I find the VAR controversy 
a bit unnecessary. It's not going to change back, you know. No, That's no, just... of course. It's the, the Pandora's box is open, but I would like the other thing that I'm trying to popularise is he was offside by a pixel. That's where we are now. You're offside by a pixel, yeah, not by a yeah. fingernail. And that is... It, it's FIFAizing the game. I mean, it, it's great for people who play computer games and want absolute accuracy, but it's not great for, let's say, someone who's paying £150 to bring their family to yeah. a game. And uh, I'm sure that The Guardian's Football Weekly has a lot to say about video assistance. Max Rushton, by the way, very good host. You see, Do you listen to uh, Max and Barry while you're working? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been on their talk sports show as well, which is, you know, which is excellent. Um, you know, great duo. And Max is a great guy as well as everything else. But yeah, a, a, a good presenter. And, and I know Max is very anti-VAR. I mean, I think one of the first shows I did or was when it had just come in. Um, I think it was I think the 2017-18 season. It's maybe been experimented with in the FA Cup or something like that. Yeah. And it was it was it was amusing to see how it operates. Then we had the World Cup, and then at the point that it arrived in the Premier League, all hell broke loose. And there is a certain conservative gammon response to it that I find not particularly helpful. I think it can work if everyone calms down a little bit about it. A lot of the time, the decision making made by it's, there's been a few decisions recently, haven't there, where you you look and you think. It's almost like the people in the in the room have panicked, and yeah. and and those on the pitch panicked, and they don't really know what to come up with. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that sense descends in the fact that this idea of clear and obvious and not overruling, and that sense comes back to it. And if you mentioned it, there, umpires call that Scott said. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I don't watch so much cricket because I don't have a telly, but. Um... Yes, I think if you get a DRS system, you go with the umpire if you, if it's inconclusive, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I should read uh, the Guardian covering the Ashes this year. Of course, of course. Will you be covering? No, I'm not a really a cricket man. Uh, I, it, it's, it's more a chance for me to sit in the sun and drink, well, or whatever. Yes. Uh, when I was back at uh, ESPN all those years ago. Uh, I, I consider myself reasonably knowledgeable about cricket, and then uh, ESPN bought Crick Info, and we yes. sat next to those chaps, and you know, some of whom remain friends of mine. And then I realised that I knew absolutely nothing about cricket compared to them, so I sort yeah. of gave up on it. I think I'm, a, I'm very similar. Yeah, I think it's one. I think it's a good sport to just have on, and I think it's nice to have sports that you aren't so invested in. So I feel that way about cricket, also rugby league, actually being a northerner. And, you know, that you can just sort of enjoy it for what it is, snooker as well. You know, you don't have to chuck yourself into it. It's just there. It's I nice think I've, have... I've got that with football. And I think I enjoy football for what it is. I'm more excited about St Albans, Borehamwood, Hemel, um, yeah. Barnet than Watford. And Watford are doing, for some reason, Watford might be promoted this year. We'll see how that goes. It would be remiss of me not to ask you what it was like living in Sheffield at the height of British rock in the 1990s. Did you go Leadmill to see Pulp at the time? Um, I've been to Leadmill, yeah, but do you know what? Uh, probably only a couple of times. Uh, yeah, what did I... Yeah, I mean, funny enough, one of my oldest and best friends used to work in the pub that was run by the drummer, Nick Banks, right. um, which is Washington, two of my friends. One of them was the bar manager, and they're still friendly with him, I believe. 
at around that time. So I moved there in 94. Jarvis Cocker about that time had become quite famous. And the thing that I realised was that the Jarvis look was actually one which was, there were quite a lot of people in Sheffield that looked like him and that he just sort of appeared from this scene. And that, that sort of, you know, uh, charity shop, crimpling sweaters and all the rest of it, it was, it, it appeared from this sort of, junk shop scene in, in Sheffield. I mean, he'd been around the town for a long time and everyone knew him. That was the era of Britpop, but I, unfortunately I wasn't really into the music. Uh, I was more into the clubbing end of things. Ah, well, yes, that was the other thing that has been conveniently overlooked because we talk about the greatness of Blur and Oasis and no one... I mean, Paul Van Dyke was having hits in... 90, or Oakenfold was having hits yeah, yeah, in yeah, 94. Yeah, yeah. This was huge. And then you had the Euro trance in, then you take... Did you go to the Euro... Hotspots, the Falarakis and your Ibethas and your Ayers and your Nappers. Not really, no. That, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I went to those clubs. I mean, Gate Crash was the mm-hmm. big one, wasn't it? Which was in Sheffield, and I used to go to the Club Republic that was based at, but I never actually went to. I think I actually queued up to get into a Gate Crash, and it took so long we went somewhere else. So, you know, I missed out on that scene, but not to my eternal regret. That was all a bit. I don't know, it wasn't really my thing. I mean, I suppose uh, it was more, more the techno type of thing that we were into, which is a bit more, what would you call it, like sort of crusty, I suppose. Crusty techno, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like sort of, um, what was the thing we called it? It was called Megadog. Have a look at that. That was just sort of lots of people in dreadlocks. I mean, the music mm. it wasn't really my, I wasn't in dreadlocks. reggae? Yeah, there was a bit of that type yeah. of thing, but they had good lineups. You know, bands like Underworld played okay. there, Orbital, that type of thing. That was the that was the scene, and then you had obviously bands like Massive Attack. That was more the type of thing that I listened to. Uh, I listened to a lot of black music at the time as well. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it was that was more my thing rather than. I mean, you know, I, 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 if you flick through my record collection, I think I've got listened to a bit of every trend possible, but. The Britpop one, it didn't really grab me, you know. I mean, everyone's into it, but... Um, what was your view on Three Lions? I, I, I quite enjoyed it, but um, I didn't enjoy the revival of it, which was in 2018. Uh, and that's mostly because of the chaps that were living upstairs from me spent the World Cup drunk, I spent it working, and I was in the Guardian office, and they were singing it every night. So that's probably jaundiced my view of it. But Twenty-five years. I'm sure. I'm sure the fiver will mark the anniversary. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember going to a night in Sheffield actually, and it was the night before Euro '96 started. Yeah. So it'd be a Friday before the England Switzerland game, and they played Three mm-hmm. Lions, uh, and then they followed it with. Uh, England New Order, World Emotion, which was more my type of thing. That's, I'm, you know, I'm from I'm from the Manchester area. Oh yeah, well so... you, you you get chucked out of Macclesfield if you say anything bad about summed up. You can say something bad about Hooky because he deserves it, but no, he's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he well, had yeah, it coming. But, but yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I went to this. Well, I'm, they're obviously a bit older than me, but I went to the same school that Stephen Morris and Ian Curtis went to. Oh, so you know, but, so it's uh, you know local heroes. My mates used to deliver milk to Stephen and Gillian, so, you know. Oh, wow. Was, he yeah. seems that incredible with um, Joy Division is that, as well as having a biography written about them, all the members, apart from Gillian, have written memoirs yes. about their yeah, time. I've, so I've you, can, so yeah, yeah. you can construct something. It's, it's like The Fall. They're one of the most written about bands. But 
Uh, yes, yeah. I'm, a big, I'm a full, probably my favourite band actually. So yeah, ah. it's it, it's it's funny, you know, that the, the fall. I, ch- I ch- chat to my friend and I say, "How did we miss the fall in the '90s?" And you know, I got into the late '90s when, in the '90s, when we were living in Sheffield, you probably could have seen them, you know, every couple of months because they were always on tour. By the, by the sort of 2000s, at which point I used to go and see them all the time. It, it was just Marky e. Smith and the Granny on Bongos line up, you know. So <laughs> it, it changed uh, all the time. Yeah, and I, I spoke to Steve Hill, who saw the fall about 50 times. Okay. Um, well, I, I and, saw them 12, so I know that's too bad, but you know. 12, yeah. Any, I don't think I've seen a band more than about five. And I know, apart from friends who are, who do music, um, yeah. no more than two or three. But mm. um, Watford, I've seen several times, and it's the story that keeps on giving. Uh, I do, John Bruin, give you your football library card, which has got Brian Glanville's face on it. You can swap it for Jonathan Wilson if you so wish. Okay, I prefer I prefer Glanners, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you? You must have been in a press box with Glanville. Oh, many times. Yes, yes. I'm um, trying to. He's ninety this September, so I'm trying yeah. to get him because this football library will be named after him um, because he is the he's the first one who criticised football in the English language. Do you have any Glanville anecdotes? It's funny that you say he's up to 90. I remember being at Arsenal when he was presented for, uh, with a cake when it was his 80th, which seems like yesterday. But I was at an England game, and I think this was ahead of Euro 2012, so Roy Hodgson had just taken over. And uh, Brian was there, and Brian was sat at the front row, and he and Roy exchanged pleasantries, and, you know, was, you know, hello, Roy, and then, you know, sort of, Good afternoon, Brian. Will you be going to the Euros, Brian? And uh, and Brian said, unfortunately not, Roy. And so I think the line was something like, oh, I was looking forward to breaking bread with you or something like that. So, oh, you shouldn't. shouldn't laugh. But yeah, yeah breaking bread in uh, Woodge. That would have been a good yeah, well, sentence. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was um, Brian was a, a regular and on the circuit. I believe he's still about. Still about. You still see his byline. As far as I know, his world soccer column isn't there. But he was... uh, Leo Moynihan said he has been a guest in the library, has spoken to Brian, who is in good health at 89. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. A a, a thoroughly nice chap. And one one story that uh, someone told me, uh, this was back at the 2006 World Cup, um, was that they were leaving one of the games and uh, someone, the, the, the office phoned Brian and said, you know, hang on, you need to file uh, a piece to us that you haven't done yet. And he said, OK, give me a minute. And just pretty much composed it on the spec, walking along on his phone. So, you know, the old style way of dictating it to, presumably, so they had to find a copy taker from somewhere to do this. Yep. Which... Well, the Richard Jolly callback. Well, yeah, I, think, I think even Richard would struggle with that. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I got into the game not long after the copy takers were uh, were about. In fact, I worked at the Press Association in the late nineties for a, a very short period, and there was a room of copy takers that people used to phone up. But eventually, that was the end of them. Nope. Uh, and in fact, one time actually. I'm working at ESPN, and this would be well, almost 20 years ago or so. Someone who was on Arsenal's tour, remember Arsene Wenger used to say Arsenal to uh, Austria mm-hmm. before Arsenal had to do pre-season tours to the Far East or America or whatever to make money. 
And uh, this guy phoned up and said, you know, right, I've got the copy for you. And I was like, right, email it to here. And in fact, he made me copy take it, which uh, I'm not sure that we actually got it down right, right correctly that day. But I think that was a day, if I recall correctly, uh, that Yaya Toure played as a trialist for Arsenal and didn't uh, they didn't sign him. So there you go. Another one missed. Penalty for Chelsea about 10 minutes ago. Pickford bringing down Havertz, Georgino, a hop and a skip, crisp and confident. Some good alliteration yeah. there. Yeah, um, very good. From yeah, Scott he, Murray. You're worrying me there because that, he's just shown how good Scott is at this. So, yeah. I think, yeah, he's got it in the memory bank. Scott Murray's book, The Title, which we've mentioned about 12 times, which is a phenomenal book. In fact, it's in the yes. library just over there, uh, the real library. But it's also in the football library alongside 365, the world's greatest football grounds. John Bruin has a hand in it. Uh, although it's produced by what magazine did you say it begins with S? Uh, Santos. It is Santos. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is your next deadline this week? What's your next minute by minute or whatever? From the chaps that used to be on uh, World Football Weekly on the BBC, um, so that includes Tim Vickery, uh, Michael. They're still there. The podcast, the the one that used to be on a Friday night on BBC, might still be. But anyway, we we. I'm contributing to a sub-stack in which... That's a newsletter. We, yeah, a newsletter, and we file twice a week, uh, and we write about uh, the various regions, and I am there, not particularly well-versed European correspondent, but we have a chap in the CONCACAF region, John Arnold, who's very good, uh, John Durden, who does Asian football, a bit of... Uh, Oceania we call it don't we Mark Gleeson who veteran South African reporter yeah, you'll have run into him in uh, South Africa yeah yeah. And, Gleeson, uh, yeah and then Tim does uh, a bit of South American stuff so we set that up five or six weeks ago and we file it t- twice a week and then there's a mailbag in which someone from one particular region answers the questions of the readers which is I suppose following the format that, that used to be on radio so we do that, and uh, you know that seems to be gathering a bit of steam, and that's thanks to John, who's set that up for us. So let's see how that goes. But um, so that's a matter of finding interesting stories from Europe, though. I went a bit generic this time, but you know there was the the classica between uh, Bayern and Dortmund, uh, and Atletico, Real. And then, of course, the Manchester derby over the weekend. So You think they do that on purpose? I guess now we will finish. Chelsea hog the ball. The clock ticks on. Everton haven't really threatened to get back into this game. He's really very good. Yes. This minute by minute. And I hope you get a good game. I hope you don't get Brighton or Burnley. Well, I don't mind doing Brighton because I know the players now and I know what's going to happen. So yeah, it's, you know the narrative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I fear for Brighton, actually. Um uh, though I think Newcastle might save them because they're just rubbish. It is, and Fulham have got the momentum now, but it is definitely Sheffield United and then two... West, West, West Brom. Brom, sorry, and then one of four. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what a, what a clash that will be. Who will lose all that financial fair play and the opportunity to play with video assistant referees next season? Um, now... Let me ask you a question. Have you preferred your team being in the championship? No, it's been awful um, because I don't watch the games. And so instead I go on Twitter and I ended up having uh, someone threaten to report me to the police 
for some reason that it's too tedious to go into. Uh, the, the team started winning and it was, but we're not playing well enough. And we're not, it's not the right style. And then we lost a couple of games, sacked the manager, got this new guy who is yeah. exactly the same, but he smiles a lot and he's a Benitez disciple. Yes. Um, and I think um, it has emboldened some of the younger fans who had no experience of the Watford of 10 years ago. And sure. this, because this in the Pozzo regime, this is the first downwards, the first time that the chart has been on a downward slope since about 2013. So it's the entitlement that I don't like of, and yet Watford are one of those teams now. We're too big for the championship yes. and not big enough for 10th in the Premier League. So whoever said we're going to be in the middle 20, that's what, that's what we are. And uh, yeah. the championship as a whole, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just the, we should be beating your Wickhams, your Barnsleys. Um, I think as soon as Brentford and Swansea go up with Norwich, I think there'll be a better Premier League because they seem to be three very good teams who can compete. But yes. the championships, oh, we had John Moss refing on Saturday. Very lovely, lovely. Which uh, a lot of people didn't like, because all the people who looked at the refs. But I would rather be shark in a pool of minnows than a minnow in a pool of corporate sharks. Right, OK. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And that had a similar logic to mine with Macclesfield Town, yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. Because we're not. We've got our stadium seats, 20,000. Old Trafford yeah. is four times that. And we just, we don't earn enough. The financial problems are there. But if we do go up, we'll bus in some players from Udinese. But at the moment, we've got this British spine of Foster, Cathcart, Hughes... Deeney, and then if a player does well, only one, only one of them is under thirty, though, right? right? So that, that's that's a problem. I'd yeah, say. and we just need to bring some youngsters. There's a kid called Hungbo who's made his debut, yep. and we need to use the Watford B. We need to promote from within more because it just makes sense. The book that I want to write is about the FA Youth Cup and how this isn't the argument because people won't want to read it. But in a time when you can't spend thirty million pound on Joe Linton. Yes. It's cheaper to promote a long staff. And so you do need to look for what's going on at youth level, promote them within. And you're seeing that with United. Someone made the point that McTominay, Rashford and was it Henderson? They all yes. played for the youth team seven years ago. Yeah. And then you forget Lingard and Pogba as well. We were yeah. part of that yeah. arrangement. And I think United are best equipped. Well, apart from City, who have the money. But United are well, better, but, yeah. But, but you know, United, I suppose, through being in the doldrums, were able to open up the team a little bit. And I mean, Liverpool actually, you know, they brought. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold, he came in. But um, yeah, it, it, it's it's very difficult for young players. I, I think is it not the problem between the jump between under twenty-three? Oh yeah, under twenty-three. Uh, just scrap it. Just get rid of it. Everyone hates it. Yes. Just get yeah. rid of it. Watford scrapped just, it. Created a B team. And the Bs are virtually the under-18s, because if you're 19, you're going to go on loan to Accrington or Forest Green. Or yeah. I think that's a sensible way to run the club. And I would love to, because obviously you've got the Udinese model of bringing in your Joao Pedros. Uh, but yes. um, Watford's going to be very interesting, in because these guys have a plan. They've taken Udinese into the Champions League. I think really Europa Conference is probably the logical thing for Watford. But it's great for the town. The town is in a good place. Um, Scott Murray with um, seven minutes to go. Repetition, he uses here. Holgate crosses from the right. It's deep, too deep. Goal kick, 
Everton have been very poor up front this evening. There was a, a piece in which Carlo Ancelotti was lionising Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, but it sounds like they've not had it too easy. I think you might say, actually, that Chelsea quite good, uh, thanks to tactics, Tom. Unfortunately, it doesn't reflect too well on their previous manager, as much as the Chelsea fans love him, and deservedly so. But um, they've got the best squad in the, the league, I'd say. So they should have been doing better. Indeed, yes, they are underperforming their expectedness. Yes. Oh, yeah, this is actually, here's the final question. Is there any pressure on you when you're writing to include statistics and the expectedness of football? I can't remember. Was it, was it Johnny? Who wrote that piece about the expected? Non-expected. May have been Wilson. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's been a few things on that. I mean, yeah. Sean Ingall is, a, is an expected goals devotee, one of the stats that he's moved more into news reporting these days. But um, I would say, no, we don't really have that much pressure. I think one of the things about the stats things is, I mean, we don't really have access to Opta or anything like that. Uh, so you're pretty much surfing Twitter and you might drop in your tweet or something like that. But yeah. Uh, I do. I mean, I do know that, um, that. I mean, there are other reporters. When I was out in the field, uh, like who say work for uh, Goal or Dzone, I think is a company that owns them these days. That they did have access to the stats, and I think it can be. I think a good start can work, but um, I think an over reliance on stats doesn't work. Um, Listen, uh, Jonathan Wilson, who we've mentioned many times, uh, mm-hmm. likes a stat, but he can write very well, and you've got to be good at both, really. And uh, as I said before, mentioned Rich Jolly uh, is the king of stats, but also writes like a dream. So that's how it can work. Um, but, you know, I, I, listen, uh, I, I may be of a slightly advanced generation of people. Um, I think the athletic have this guy, Tom Warville, mm-hmm. who is very good. So... Uh, you know, it, it can work, it can be interesting, but you've got to be a good writer in the first place to, to actually carry that stuff off. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the way it goes. And Jonathan Lou, who you know well, um, he's always been a stats guy and he makes them work. Barney too, you know, these are people that you would consider pure writers, but they use them and they use them well. Hmm. Uh, the future of football journalism, especially at Guardian Sport, is... Well, uh, Football Weekly and the Fiverr that you can subscribe to. Do you know how many people subscribe to the Fiverr? I don't have access to that information. Let's call it five million. Okay, and then yeah. VAR can check it. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and what The Guardian does. It certainly brightens up my life every day. I think I, I must go to The Guardian sports section every day. It is one of my go-tos. And I will, John Bruin, look for your byline even more eagle-eyedly especially with the MBMs. But in the meantime, enjoy Fulham against Leeds and the rest of your um, quarantine until you get to go back to the grounds. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, John.